We'd Like a Word. Welcome back to this episode of We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And maybe Steve Colgan. <laughs> or is it ChatGPT? And Ajay Chowdhury, author of The Detective and the Camel Raman series, and tech guru and chat GPT expert is with us in the studio too. Hello. Hey, good to see you. And you're listening to We'd Like a Word. Now, Steve made a revelation in between part one and part two. I don't know if he's going to share it. We were talking about how many fingers he had, you know, because chat GPT pictures and AI generated art tends to get the number of feet and hands wrong. Anything else you want to share? <laughs> Are you talking about my extraneous... Papula. <laughs> yeah, he's yes. got three nipples, yeah, basically. Yeah, he's got three nipples. Yeah. So it's I quite thought... common. It's it's about 10% of the population have maybe got an extra one. It's oh, really? Oh. Or maybe it's 1%. I don't know. It's, it's it's not huge, but it's not uncommon. Well, we must have had plenty of people with three on this podcast then, unbeknownst yeah, to us. Very possibly. Can't just to be Wasn't new. Wasn't there a James Bond film where somebody had three nipples? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, do you know, it annoys me every time I see it because it was it was Christopher Lee as Scaramanga. That's right, that's right. And that's right. when uh, Roger Moore tries to pretend to be um, Scaramanga, he, he turns up and he puts the nipple in the middle of his chest, the third one. Oh, right. That isn't how it works. I mean, yeah. if you look at an animal, they run two lines down yeah, the, right, down the right, belly. It's right, called right, the milk right. lines. Right, right. So right. they always have to go along that line. You can't have one in the middle. So... I'm amazed Scaramanga didn't put, shoot him in the head straight away, personally. But, uh, <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah, we have had Anthony Horowitz, Bond continuation author. Has he got three? Uh, well, I don't know. He didn't um, say. Lily Allen's got three. And we had uh, Judith O'Reilly, who, I'm afraid, won the Marjorie Allingham short mystery competition. Congratulations to her this year. Narrowly, narrowly beating Ajay Chowdhury. Now, she also should be the new Bond writer. What we want to hear about is Kamal Raman. Who is he and what's this series about? Tell us about it. I'm holding this book with a lovely cover <laughs> in my hand, The Detective. So this is part three. What's, tell us ab about it. Absolutely, them. absolutely. So, so Kamal Raman is a uh, guy who used to be a cop in India, in Calcutta. And uh, he got thrown out of the Calcutta police force for corruption. Uh, well, actually, because he, 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 he wouldn't turn a blind eye for corruption. And he ended up as a waiter in a restaurant in the East End, a little Indian restaurant in the East End. Of London. Uh, East End of London, in Brick Lane. So this ended up being quite a big downfall for him. And he's here licking his wounds and kind of he's crazy in love with the owner of the restaurant, Anjali. Uh, and in the first book, The Waiter, he's catering a party. And the millionaire whose birthday party it is is found dead and he's got to solve that crime. In the second book, he gets promoted to cook. Uh, and in the third book, he actually rejoins the Met as a detective, which is what this book's about. And what fascinated me about this book was, was, was really two different things. As I was researching it, I started looking into the history of the East End, which is absolutely fascinating, uh, and particularly got fascinated by the Jewish entrepreneurs who came at the end of the 18th century, uh, uh, beginning of the 19th and, and 20th centuries, and really set up the rag trade in the East End and... If you then contrast that with today, where tech entrepreneurs have gone into that same area, I found a lot of similarities between the two. And I really wanted to explore that. Um, so the core of the book is a AI tech company where the founders start getting bumped off one by one. And Carmel is a detective. It's his first case. He's got to figure out what happened. But then there's a second case where three skeletons are found uh, and they turn out to be Jewish people who were killed 100 odd years ago. And Anjali, Carmel's kind of unrequited love interest, has to try and figure out what happened to them. 
and it's their lives intertwining, which I think were quite fascinating. So yeah, so it's uh, it's been great fun following his journey and seeing where he goes to. So I was going to say, how did you get on with the research? Because research can be very seductive, can't it? Oh, you can end up doing so much of it, you don't write the book. <laughs> oh, you really can. Um, and, and, and the Jewish research was very interesting because the reason that idea came to me was actually fascinating because I was browsing in a secondhand bookshop and I saw this book and I just looked at the cover and I got completely taken aback. And it was two boys who were probably about seven years old. And they, it was one of these sepia photographs, the kind of photograph uh, you, you were talking about in a, uh, a minute ago. They're both in kind of trousers and hats, but they were both smoking cigarettes. And I just looked at this and this is amazing. Uh, and the book is called Children of the Ghetto by a guy called Israel Zangwill. And it takes place in, the, in 1890, 1895 in the East End. And it's about this family living there. And I read it and I fell in love with it. It's one of the most wonderful books I've read. It's hilarious, it's moving, it's touching, and it taught me so much. And that's really what gave me the impetus. And then I read a whole bunch of other books from that area, Child of the Jago, etc., etc., and then looking in the archives to see what happened there. Uh, but yes, you're right, you can go down a serious rabbit hole, and then you know it ends up being about 5% of the book, and you've probably spent 75% of your time <laughs> researching it. And that's the hard yeah. thing, isn't it? Because you spend so much time doing it, and then you put it into the book. And you do your first draft, yeah. you think, right, now I start the editing page, and you go through it, and there's that whole thing in your head about, if it doesn't take the story forward, get rid of it. Exactly. But it's so good. Exactly. It's so good, I don't want to lose it. But exactly. it's, it's also really interesting what you said about the kids smoking, because yeah. we don't always realise that the, the Victorians kind of invented childhood. Yeah. Because up, up until that time, and, and the start of what we would now recognise as the start of the welfare state and education for all, as soon as a child was up on their feet, they were a young adult. They were they were yep. ready to work, and yep. uh, you know they were dressed in small versions of adults' yep. clothes, and yep. it, it's extraordinary, really. And I mean, there's a lot of photographs of, of kids at school smoking pipes and things like this. <laughs> it's, it's really quite odd. It's really quite mm -hmm. odd, and having a small beer at lunch. So. Uh, the other thing I liked about it that you've worked in virtual reality VR yeah. into it to bridge that historical gap. So one of the characters is kind of demonstrating the power of the, some of the technology their company has, and they recreate a VR version of 1913 mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Jewish street in the East End of London, which does take the story forward and yeah. informs it. And then other AI that's happening in it, there's this surveillance mm -hmm. strand. This is like your real life has kind of bled into your fictional life. Oh, very much so. And, and I think, you know, that happens for a lot of people. But, you know, what could happen with AI has always fascinated and terrified me. And the kind of surveillance in particular, I find deeply, deeply disturbing. So if you look at what's happening in China now, where the cameras are everywhere and the cameras can see exactly what you do. I think London has some of the most, most amount of CCTV cameras in the world today. And the minute you put facial recognition in, they can track whatever you're doing. So if you take a combination of ANPR, facial recognition, recognition, and now they're beginning to, I mean, you, you'll know this, now they're beginning to use ring cameras that people have on their doorsteps to be able to track where people are going. Oh, yes. So that I found absolutely fascinating, terrifying. And you take it to the next phase of the stuff that happened in Minority Report and say, okay, if you can track all this, can you now start to predict what people might do? And that's when really everything gets seriously scary. And that's kind of what I wanted to explore in the book. I mean, it's a good yarn. It's a good story. It's funny. It's thrilling, I hope. You know, and at the end of the day, you know, you, you get to where it is. But the startup that I've got that's doing the AI stuff is actually run by Israelis, which again linked back. This to, is in the book. The that's in the, the book, fictional the, one. The, the fictional, fictional one. 
And that linked back then to the Jewish people from the early 1900s. Uh, and I just loved all of those connections. Because I suppose the thing is, like any tool, it depends who's behind it, what they're going to use it for. Yep. I mean, AI does have the potential to do extraordinary things for mankind. And every so often you just think, that, look, just think what it'll do for medicine and surgery. Absolutely. And, think what Absolutely. It'll do for that. and then you look at the people who are funding all the research and you think, yeah, you just want to make more money. You know, you just want to go do all the Amazon drivers and have self-driving cars doing yep. all the deliveries and things and all those people will be out of work. Yeah, I think as long as as long as the people behind these te- technological innovations have good intentions, I don't think we have to worry. But oh, that, well, we'll, we'll, oh, we'll, we'll be fine then. Elon Musk, yeah. Mark, Phew, Elon we'll Musk Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, they're, they're absolutely fine. I mean, yeah. why, why, why would you worry in the least? I mean, yeah. the interesting thing is, you know, Stephen Hawking, <laughs> Elon Musk, they've actually been warning against the dangers of they AI have, for yes. a very, very long time. And I think it will have to be regulated. As you mentioned earlier, you know, Rishi Sunak is in the US at the moment discussing AI regulation with President Biden. What form that regulation will take is going to be interesting because they're not discussing regulating today's AI. They're discussing yeah. regulating tomorrow's AI that doesn't exist yet. And yes, that could be a lot scarier. But it's a lot easier to regulate something that doesn't exist yet oh, and course, say, yeah. oh, well, keep your hands off what we're doing right now. Just well, focus on that stuff over there. It's the military application, I think, is what people are most concerned about. Yeah, all right, the art and the writing and everything else, but it's the military Oh, that's not going to get regulated. That is the one thing which will not get regulated. You can bet your bottom dollar. And when you've got AI making decisions like yep. that, that's, that's where it starts getting a bit scary. So that's when we're talking about artificial general intelligence. The military applications are there very much today and making yeah. decisions very much today already. Artificial general intelligence is the next breakthrough, which some people think will never come. Some people think it'll be here in the next 10 years. And that's where the AI really begins to think like us. Right now, as I said, ChatGPT is just predictive text on steroids. When it starts thinking like us and making decisions like us, then it gets really interesting. One of the most fascinating things I read recently was they hooked up a person to an MRI and got them to watch a movie. And the AI has now begun to figure out, depending on which bits of your brain light up, what is it that you're thinking? Because different parts of your brain light up at different times based on what you're doing. And the AI could actually give them the rough plot of the movie the person was watching by looking at which bits of their brain lit up when they did it. That's astounding. Yes, I read the same feature. It's, that's almost yeah. mind reading, isn't it? I mean, that's, yeah. your, that's your future lie detectors. That's your future. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's, um... We should hear a bit of the yes. detective. Would you read us? Sure. Some? Sure. Let me, so give let us me a bit read. of the context where we are. What bit? Sure. So we're in the East End of London. It's Wednesday, the 31st of December, 1913. So this is from the very start, is it? This is from the very start, and it's the eve of the Great War. He died for your sins. Determined to be heard above the hubbub in St. Catherine's docks, the preacher tilted his head back and his voice rose above the racket. What is he saying, Papa? Leah's sticky hand wormed its way into her father's as she skipped along to keep up. Avram pulled down his fur hat against the late-night fog creeping in from the Thames. The cold in London was nothing compared to what he'd experienced growing up in Pinsk. It was the damp he couldn't stand. It crept over you like a malaise till you felt you'd never be warm again. He muttered, a meshuggah leer. She looked at him, little face questioning. Avram smiled and switched to halting English, the language with which he wanted her to grow up. Come quick, or we'll miss the bells. Over his shoulder he saw Malka pushing the perambulator. Baby swaddled and asleep, asleep to the surrounding tumult. He raised an eyebrow and she nodded she was fine, tucking a stray lock of hair back under her headscarf. Pinsky? 
A figure emerged from the fog in top hat and tail, silhouetted against the light from the gas lamps. Malka stiffened as Avram shot her a warning glance and said, Mr. Pennyfeather. The man swayed towards them, his hairy hand crutching a bottle of Krug. How are you, Pinsky? This is your family. Pennyfeather's upper-class accent contrasted with Avram's rough Slavic tone. Avram gave a curt nod and walked away. Pennyfeather called after him. Have you reconsidered, Pinsky? Mr. Pennyfeather, I've already told you many times my business is not for sale. I must go now. My children are tired. Everything is for sale with you people. I'm a patient man, Pinsky, but I need an answer. Pennyfeather's eyes glittered. Draining his bottle, he dropped it together with any pretense of civility. As it smashed on the street, he grabbed Avram by the throat and slammed him against his front door. Avram's hat fell off and rolled into the sewer, and Pennyfeather hissed, his face an inch away. Listen to me. Sign those papers tomorrow. I will make sure they throw you and your family back to wherever country you came from. Leah screamed at the sudden violence, and Miriam wailed as Avram struggled, trying to prise away the excruciating grip from his neck. Malka grabbed Pennyfeather's arm and sank her teeth into his hand, drawing blood. Pennyfeather shouted, Hellcat bitch, and spun around. He punched her on the side of her face. She fell back. Blood gushed from under her shaitel. Mame, Leah screamed and ran to her mother as the baby screwed up her tiny face, cries filling the street. Avram dropped, knelt beside his wife and shook her. Malka, Malka! But there was no response. Her eyes were open, unseeing. Pennyfeather stared at Malka's dead body, then at Avram and Leah, panic on his face. He turned to run, paused and glanced around the darkness of the empty street. Swivelling, he pulled a derringer from his pocket, pointed Avram with a quivering hand. Avram looked at, up at him, uncomprehending. Pennyfeathered muttered, I'm sorry, I can't let you, and fired, hitting Avram point-blank in the head, the gunshot causing the baby to stop crying. Fish shaking, Pennyfeather turned the gun onto Leah and, shutting his head, squeezed the trigger once more, the shot lost in the ratatat of firecrackers in the distance. Seeing her lying dead on the road, he fell to his knees and vomited. He stayed kneeling for a minute, then stood, passed his arm over his mouth and dragged Avram across the street to the rim of the construction cavity. He tipped him over the edge, the corpse falling for twenty feet, swallowed by darkness. Another concerted effort, the bodies of Malka and Leah followed their patriarch into the pit. Breathing hard, he walked over to the pram and stared at Miriam. She gazed back at him with huge dark eyes, silent, as if she realised something momentous had taken place. Pennyfeather hesitated, put away his gun, snatched Miriam under one arm, and rolled the perambulator into the hole. Then he vanished into the night with the baby. The rain washed away the blood and vomit, and soon there was nothing to show that anything of note had happened, except for a sodden fur hat in the gutter, a smashed champagne bottle, and a scattering of chestnuts on the cobbles. Mm. Good choice of reading. I want to know what happened to the baby now. <laughs> well, you may well wonder what happens to the baby. I'd love to read the book. Yeah. Because the interesting things happen to the baby. Indeed mm. they do. Indeed and they do. the recreation of the streetscape then yeah. in the VR also plays a role. Yeah. I really want to do that because I did want to bring that life, that era to life. I just picked VR as a way to do it mm. because I didn't want to write a historical thriller. Uh, so this is the only kind of historical bit in it. The rest of it is set today. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of a historical detective story as well as yeah. it's various different detective stories going on. And there's quite a high death toll. There is. Well, there kind of has to be these days to keep people's interest, sadly enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wonder, does that ac accurately reflect the kind of, I don't know, the tension and HR situation within the tech 
industry today. <laughs> of a very high death toll. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe, maybe just what people are wanting to do. Well, I mean, there's massive death toll in startups and 95% of startups fail and die. That's mm. true. So in, in that sense, I suppose I suppose there are. Mm-hmm. But in that way, it's quite evolutionary because that's pretty much how species were. That's is very Darwinian. 99% of all species that have ever existed don't exist anymore. That's right. Mm. That's right. Well, I would definitely recommend this. It's really, really good. I'm looking forward to the next one. Tell us a little bit about the next one. What can you tell us about it? Well, the next one's interesting because it's it's a thriller as opposed to a detective story. And, and I read this really nice definition uh, of, of the two where I think it was that a detective story, a crime has occurred and you're trying to um, figure out who done it. Whereas with a thriller, you're trying to stop a crime from occurring, uh, which I thought was actually quite a nice little definition. So the next one's an interesting one because it's essentially about, I don't give too much away, but it's essentially about a Islamic terrorist group in London that's planning something heinous and Carmel is asked to infiltrate them as a spy. But he slowly starts to identify with them and thinks actually given what's happening to Muslims in India today where the situation for them is truly, truly horrific, that maybe something like this needs to be done. So it's, again, you know, back to could Gen AI write something like that? Probably not because this is very much about his personal dilemma, his personal internal issues that he's dealing with, trying to stop this horrendous terrorist stuff from happening, but actually agreeing with the ends they want to get to. Uh, And again, I think it's going to be hard for AI to write something like that. Um, So it's one I'm quite excited about, uh, slightly nervous about, because the stuff happening in India today is quite awful. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's hard for people to talk about it. But uh, I decided I wanted to, and uh, you know, so we we we'll see what happens. I suppose that's a good challenge to set oneself as a writer: write something that AI will find difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's not the only reason. It's funny you're talking about it's it's about people and how people feel. My yeah. favourite. I mean, I don't read a lot of fiction. If I'm honest, I'm much more of a non-fiction person. I like a lot of history and science and things like that. But, but someone who I used to love reading when I was younger was John Wyndham, the guy who wrote Day of the Triffids Absolutely. and The Crack and Wakes. And, and what always struck me about John Wyndham's books is there will be a little science fictiony sort of element, such as a meteor shower that makes yep. everyone blind, and then these plants escape from captivity that have been genetically bred yep. for for oil, which uh, and, they're, and they're predatory. But the books are always about the people. Yep. They're never about the situation. It's like the crack and wakes. You don't you don't even get to see the bad guys. Yep. All you know is these aliens have landed, melted the ice caps and flooded the world and they and same with the midwitch cuckoos, you know, it's the this extraordinary thing has happened, but it's how the people deal with the fact that their children are quite obviously aliens. Yep. You know, and dangerous. And that sort of book is the sort of book that always captures me. Yep. In the same way that watching, you know, a very finely crafted and well made film will grab me and I want to see it over and over yep. again, whereas I won't want to see the latest superhero movie over and over Absolutely. again, because that's just all, it's all bells and whistles and exactly. colours and CGI, and, and there's no substance to it. Exactly. So, yeah, I'm hoping you're right. I'm hoping you're right, because it is those those things that you latch onto, the, the humanity, and, and seeing people go through a situation and imagining how you would cope in that situation into the story. Yeah, I, I, I love so. John Wyndham, Wyndham growing up. I mean, I grew up in India, and in India you grew up in the Holy Trinity, of Enid Blight and Agatha Christie and P.G. Woodhouse. Of course, yes. <laughs> All of whom have influenced my writing, I will yeah. say. But uh, interestingly enough, I mean, you know, so if you look at the Sherlock Holmes, the Agatha Christie's, the characters didn't matter as much there. That was very much about plot and the yeah, characters yeah. were, you know, Sherlock Holmes was a kind of godlike character, if you will. But the flawed detective very much came through in the 70s, 80s and, and now. Uh, and they start mattering, mattering a lot more. And that's what people are most interested in. 
you know, one of the writers I love most is Philip Kerr, who writes about uh, the Bernie Gunter series, which, uh, you know, set yeah. in Germany in, uh, before the war and then post-war. Following his journey over 15, 20, 25 years, how he copes with all that is what makes it really interesting. I mean, they're great thrillers, but it's him that you really want to read about and say what happened to him. I want to talk about more chat GPT and AI stuff with you, but I think we should do that in part three of this episode of Weed Like a Word with me, Paul Walters. And me, Stephen Colgan. <laughs> and Ajay Chowdhury, author of The Detective. So we will see you in part three. <laughs>